Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare podcast. Today, we sit down with Mike and Arnie to talk about the issues clients facing regarding their supply chain, especially when it comes down to supplier qualification and the reality versus expectation in the process of contracting. As we're going to hear each other after this, do some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hello, this is Mike Druckmann from Hogan Lovells. I'm here with my colleague, Arna Thierman. Hi, hello. We're here to talk about supply chain issues. And I'll just say a word about myself first. I'm a partner in the FDA regulatory pharmaceutical practice in Washington, DC. And I also chair the firm's global cell tissue and gene therapy working group, which is a global cross-border group aimed at specifics to those kind of products. Arne? Yes, I'm part of the European Life Sciences Commercial and Regulatory Practice based in Hamburg. I advise a lot of clients on their supply chain contracts, so all kinds of questions which relate to the relationship between the supplier and the principal relating to regulatory commercial aspects to setting and implementing their supply chain relationship. So what are the big issues that you see all the time that clients come to you to get help with? Yeah, interestingly, it's often the, the same aspect that they come to us and say, look, we want to have really strict requirements and clauses on the supplier. They have to deliver in time and we want them to make pay penalties in case they they." they delivered too late and you, you have to put in really strict language. And then I'm like, okay, that, I mean, the, the first thing is that it's very seldom that you're actually successful with that because it, it depends a lot on whether the, the process of manufacturing allows for, for such a scheme because, uh, I mean, it makes a lot of difference and you, you know that oh, if you yeah. have an innovative drug or you have a drug which has been produced for the last 20 years. And in the first case, the manufacturer will need to develop the process and they will need to scale it up and bring it on a level for commercial supply and they might not even have validated so far. And then getting to the supplier and telling them you have to pay for late delivery, <laughs> you know, it's a nice wish. But it's unrealistic because it's reasonable to say that the supplier yeah, takes a risk here because he's developing the process together with a, with a marketing authorization holder, of course. But there are so many risks inherent to it, be it yeah, process-related, but product-related. And so in the end, we, we, we need to find other ways to address the client's need to get product in time. And this will usually involve to really sit down and talk about the forecasting mechanisms, the, the time schedules for that, the production cycles on, on, on the side of the supplier, mm. but also the needs on, on side of the marketing authorization holder and really sit down and talk about their needs. And then we can talk about to put this into language, into a forecasting mechanism. And then maybe at the end also talk about, yeah, not really penalties, but we, for instance, could talk about key performance indicators so that there is uh -huh. a bonus in case of you know fulfilling certain yields or that there might be certain some form of of malice in case you know yeah timelines are not met consistently or, or things like that so it will be rather more also a flexible system and, and in very seldom cases it's it's a strict penalty clause you see that right. but seldom 
I imagine, particularly with many of my clients who are innovative and are on the cutting edge, it would be very difficult to have precise timelines ahead of time, particularly in the early stages. I know many of my clients plan for a launch. In other words, they, they want to launch their drug as soon as possible to approval from, in my case, the FDA, but anywhere in the world. But that requires a lot of earlier stage planning. Sometimes, as you mentioned, even before they've fully validated the manufacturing, the commercial stage um, manufacturing process. And do you see that issue uh, that you deal sometimes with companies at that pre-approval stage as they're planning for launch? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we often see the stage between turning from clinical supply to a commercial supply, which is usually two, three years in advance of right. the intended launch. And finding the right supplier is the first task for the client yes. to identify a supplier which can help him for commercialization. And this is also a critical phase, I would think, on your side, if you look at uh, supplier qualification. Oh, and something, absolutely. Is this something where, where clients like to involve you? Oh, yes. From a regulatory perspective, that's critical. And many prudent clients, with our advice, look to put in more than one supply, having an alternate mm-hmm. supplier in place. But it's very important to make sure that whoever you're relying on, whether it's only one or it's two or more, can qualify and meet all the regulatory requirements. In the U.S., although the FDA will inspect some of those suppliers, a lot of the responsibility falls to the application holder to ensure uh, compliance. And, and if there's a problem, it falls to the, the application holder. So I've had situations where companies have um, been aiming for a particular approval date and they don't, they get pushed back from FDA because of a supplier not being in compliance. And, um, and then of course you have the alternate situation that they get approved and the supplier then runs into problems after the fact. And that's also problematic because they're planning on the launch at a particular time certain supply and if the supplier either can't meet the demand but or run into the regulatory problems itself then there are all kinds of issues that have to be worked out so yeah that's an interesting aspect because um another point which always comes up is second source which you mentioned and technology transfer ah yeah and then yeah we need language on the technology transfer that we can do it anytime but from a regulatory perspective what what are the hurdles to, to actually do a technology transfer and what would be realistic timelines oh, uh, and it, your it, experience yeah, to, to well, actually do it? That's a great question. It's very situation specific. So depending on the transfer, there's very often a need for a separate approval. And so if a different manufacturer or supplier has to be included in the application. So if you're going to add a whole new supplier, or you're going to transfer technology to someone else to do the supply, usually that will require what's called a supplement, which is a change to the application, which adds this new person. And very often it requires the FDA to go in and do an inspection. You can't just order FDA on a dime to come in and inspect <laughs> it. Oh, we're ready tomorrow. So we need you to come today. It doesn't work that way. So it's very, this advanced planning that you mentioned, the two years, very often companies don't adequately forecast for that and plan ahead. That they, they're so focused on all the regulatory, the regulatory aspects surrounding 
just the approval that they get thing or just don't make enough priority to think about the regulatory and commercial aspects of getting supply in place, the supply chain in place ahead of time. And one example of that in the United States, there's an act called the Drug Supply Chain Security Act went into effect in November of 2013. And the whole purpose is to put in place regulatory requirements to ensure the safety of drugs moving throughout the supply chain. And in incremental steps, it has been imposing more and more requirements on all players in the industry from the manufacturer all the way to the pharmacy. So it's important that each player and manufacturers included really understand what those requirements are and plan ahead. One of the more difficult ones is something called serialization, which is a colloquial term for placing a product identifier on each package of product. And there's a lot of technical requirements in order to achieve that. There are a number of contractors that have the technology to do it, but it's important to approach them to get advice from people like yourself, Arna, to um, make sure that everyone's in agreement about how that's going to work. Sometimes it requires shipping it somewhere else mm -hmm. to have this package serialized with a, it's a serial number that goes separate number on each package so that it's better accounting of each unit of product. But that's not an easy thing. And so there are many companies that thought they could do it themselves and the last minute they realized they need help or that there's not been good communication or contractual understanding between those contractors and the manufacturer. And so it's really important to plan ahead and get legal advice, both on the regulatory and the commercial side for those things. Yeah, interesting what you say, because we recently experienced a case on serialization with respect to we uh, in the EU, we also by the falsified uh, medicines directive, which is intended to keep track of every package in the supply chain out there. But it requires the manufacturer also to put security labels on product oh. and they need to be fixed in a certain way. And sometimes it gets difficult to do that. If, For instance, if you have a product which is temperature controlled, right. it needs to be stored under temperature controlled conditions and you haven't implemented or maybe you're a little bit in between of having a process which puts these safety stickers on it. And we had a discussion with the authorities that they said it needs to be printed, but it was impossible for practical reasons to print it uh. and we could only put a sticker on it. And so you, you sometimes get just practical problems um, and, and in discussions with, with the authorities on that. Legal situation is unclear. Parallel importers, they can put stickers uh, on products, but the originator, I mean, they, they, the, the authority said you have to print it, oh. but sometimes it doesn't work. So on serialization, there's also can be, can be sometimes practical and legal hurdles. Ah, <laughs> yes. And it's very important to coordinate internationally. Because uh, the requirements are different in the different jurisdictions. So if you have product, we have some clients whose products are manufactured in the United States and are exported to Europe for packaging, mm -hmm. just for packaging, specialized mm -hmm. packaging. And this is a temperature controlled, you know, at really cold temperatures product. So there's the whole, um, both the manufacturing process and the supply distribution process has to be validated. 
to ensure that the temperature will remain the same. It won't be subjected to any other conditions that could harm the product. And that the packaging, including the serialization process, the packaging process and the serialization process do not adversely affect the product. Then it comes back into the United States, has to go through the whole import process. And then in this particular case, there are different selected distribution centers. So if the, a lot for how it's going to get there and to ensure that the distributor in the United States, who in that case is not the same as the one that shipped it overseas, has the same levels of controls on the product. So it does make for the need to be very careful and forethinking thinking in your planning. That's an interesting aspect you mentioned with, with the cross-border supply chain activities. And, and we see this very often that clients from the U.S. setting up their supply chain for Europe. And then they are obviously looking for efficient structures and, and not setting up a manufacturing facility in each European country, but rather, you know, get the product manufactured in the U.S. and, and maybe then labeled even in the U.S. and then shipped to Europe or labeled in Ireland or so, but have a, for instance, central warehouse somewhere, Germany, Netherlands or so. And then a, a couple of regulatory problems begin. So we need to identify the licenses that, that you need in order to import these products into Europe in this right. case, but we still have a couple of different countries. So is it possible to have a central warehouse and serve Italian clients uh, with a product which is stored in the Netherlands? and send directly to an Italian hospital and at the same time have a total different flow of title of the product. So ah. the, the flow of title might be that the US entity sells to the Irish entity and then goes to Switzerland for <laughs> tax reasons and then back to the Italian affiliate, which sells to the Italian hospital. And in this case, you know, you, you, you have a physical flow of products, which never goes to Switzerland but you have a legal flow which goes through Switzerland and this creates a couple of regulatory problems because you have an export to Switzerland legally uh, and an import again. So you need to think about what kind of license does the Italian affiliate need in order to get the product back again into the EU and sell it on to, to the Italian hospital. And The, the approach of the authorities is totally different if we see different countries, yes. even within Germany. So sometimes you see the wholesale license is totally enough. But in some cases, you require to apply for an import license, which has higher requirements. So talking with the client about their supply chain and the full picture of not only the physical flow of products, but also the legal title flow is an important aspect to identify regulatory yes. hurdles to that. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point that when there's a difference between the title and who owns it and the physical possession, we have that issue all the time with our clients all, uh, in the United States too. And even with the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, which is an ownership based obligation. So the obligations run to whoever owns it at a particular time in the chain, and they sometimes contract with third parties called third-party logistic providers, the 3PLs, who don't own it. They're just consignees, but the manufacturer has the liability for the product while it's in their hands. So it's really important to have the contracts in place and have adequate controls over those parties 
and to have made clear in the contracts where ownership begins and where it ends. So if it gets lost or damaged in the process, it's very clear. I must imagine you must deal with that issue. You know, who has responsibility if it's lost along the way or damaged or stolen? We just had a client that got a report that one of its suppliers had some products stolen, which is actually a surprisingly and shockingly common phenomenon. And they were asking questions of, well, how does it get reported? Who has to report it? Do we have to report it? What steps do we need to take? And so that's a, but we get that question surprisingly often, actually. And so these are from a regulatory point of view. It's important to make sure that you check all the boxes and to handle everything. And then from a practical point of view, make sure that you've considered all the issues that could implicate the product, not just in the immediate term, but longer term is there an impact on the reputation yeah. of the product. If it's got stolen and someone does something bad with it, is that going to hurt the company? So should the company, even if not required, should the company take more proactive steps and report it to authorities, even if they don't have to. So there's a range of considerations, sometimes very circumstance and product and company specific. I know that you're very active in the field of advanced and new therapies, gene therapies, cell therapies, and what are the major questions or aspects clients from this industry currently turn to you with and ask you from a regulatory perspective, I have a gene therapy product, what I'm going to do with my supply chain, what do I need to observe? Well, it, it raises some really interesting questions that we haven't faced as often or really to this degree before. So some of the gene therapies are derived from tissues or cells of the patient, him or herself. The term for that is autologous. And in that case, the tissue or cells have to be collected first, typically in a hospital or by a doctor, and then transported in a way that retains their, you know, their integrity and, um, and their identity, because it has to come back to that very same patient. And so it's important to ensure that the doctor or hospital that's collecting that observes processes that they don't necessarily observe in the course of regular medical practice. Because in the course of medical practice, often there's no need to track it. Sometimes they'll extract cells for testing that just right there on site. But this is, it's going to a a far location often. And also sometimes has to be collected in a certain way in order for it to be manufactured, which might be different than the normal process of, say, collecting platelets or leukocytes, which are white blood cells. So... There are a range of interesting questions about how a manufacturer essentially includes that hospital doctor within the manufacturing process and where the obligations begin and where they end. We just had a question from a client about the labeling um, for infectious disease testing and whether the manufacturer who's going to receive those has any obligations to require the hospital to do that testing. Sometimes, for example, there, there are actually exemptions normally for biological products coming from humans. There's a bunch of infectious disease testing for HIV and hepatitis C, hepatitis B and the like. But for these autologous products, 
there's an exception because those patients have it yeah. already. Yeah. So there's an exemption, but there are some circumstances where the testing by a matter of medical practice has to be done. So the question was, what obligations does the manufacturer have to find out about that testing that might happen? And if there are results, label the product for that. And some concerns, for example, is that the people handling it should know that's infected. And does that need to be then on the label? And if so, how? So there's a bunch of these interesting questions that arise that don't come up as often in the world of small molecule drugs where there are chemicals and it's not as sort of human specific that arise. You mentioned a very in, in, interesting point, and sometimes we see that you really need to go into details of the product and the manufacturing process and what it really includes and does not include. Yes. Because we saw cases where there were autologous cells with respect to T cells, yes. example, but also donator cells, and they were combined in the, in oh. the final product. Oh, And I mean, this creates then problems from all types oh. of... Yeah, it raised some very, very, right, very challenging. So because you would have these questions on testing and the requirements for that, but also identity again. Right. And in general, this, which requirements and procedures do the hospitals have to apply? Because they might have made this, as you said, as part of their medical practice for the last 10 years. Right. And they have some experience with that. Mm -hmm. But it makes a difference whether you have to implement a standardized process. Yes rather than do it and cook it yourself. Right, right, according, uh, to, according to your instincts, own, right, yeah, instincts right. or own recipe. Right, right, so right. That's also a very interesting point that we see together with our clients to implement standardized processes yes. at institutions which claim to have, and they have experience with that. And sometimes it's not easy to convince right. institutions oh. that they need to change processes or that Right. For them to understand, right. It's very hard to understand. In some cases, it's different than the procedure because of the need to document the control means that you have to actually do it a little bit differently and certainly record it differently than you do in the hospital. I mean, hospitals have their own procedures and tracking mechanisms. But when you, for blood, for example, there's an international standardized protocol for and actual types of barcode labeling for blood components that are just being used in hospitals. And that's different than I told you about the standardized product identifier, the serialization. That's actually a barcode requirement, which is different than the typical barcode that hospitals use to track regular blood components like plasma or platelets that they're going to then just infuse into patients. It's a different barcode. And so there is that question about whether one has to have two. And can you get an exception? Because it's obviously not so efficient, and they'd rather not. And so we've worked with the agency to try to uh, get exceptions or get um, eventually a rule that will make it clearer for clients. But all these things are, there's no real precedent for them. Yeah. And so you have to go and establish what it will be because you can't necessarily rely on what's been done before. Do you see it also that there is different enforcement or let's say position of authorities, what they require from a regulatory license perspective? Oh yeah. In, in the US so that when once they would say the hospital needs an additional license to be part of this manufacturing process or 
Well, is it is it is yes. there a, a, a uniform approach to to everything in the U.S.? No, not at all. I mean, we have the same issues in some ways that you have in Europe, except by fifty, oh, well, um, yeah. fifty different states. There was an attempt that drug supply chain security act I mentioned was an attempt to reduce some of the state by state variation of requirements, but it did not eliminate that. So there, like you mentioned, wholesale distributor licenses. Each state requires one. And there are differences. So you physically have to apply to each state and there are differences state to state. And then an example is there's a handful of states that have tissue bank license, separate tissue bank licenses. And in order to actually even transport human tissue into that state or store it in the state, one would need to get a tissue bank license in that state. New York is an example, California, Maryland. And the standards for those are actually very different. And we've had clients that have immediately gotten a license from Maryland, but ran into a whole problem with New York and are waiting for time. And um, so it does raise a number of challenges for coordination and consistency that one has to think through before assuming, oh, I got my FDA approval, I'm good. Not necessarily. So it's important to think these things through ahead and to make sure that you uh, have contractual protections to make sure that if you're relying on others to get that done, which is needed. A lot of times your distributors, um, people will rely on distributors, but the distributors don't always know all the requirements that they need. So it's important to, to audit and to make sure ahead of time that your distributors and people you contract with actually know what their requirements are. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't get hung up. Okay. Well, Arna, this has been a really interesting discussion. I learned a few things. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you on this uh, podcast. And I look forward to working with you to help clients in bringing um, innovative and important products to the United States and Europe and around the world. Yeah, Mike, thanks. I can just say the same. It was very interesting to, uh, I mean, we worked on a couple of clients together already. So, yeah. I mean, in setting up their structures, yeah, will be a crucial part for their expansion to Europe. Yes. And, um, well, thanks. Thank you. Look forward to it. So that's it for today. If you have further questions for Arne and or Mike, reach out via hogenlovels.com. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment and let us know what you would like to hear about on the next episode. Again, thank you for tuning in today. We're going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking The Cure. Thank you.